Well, I'm sure you will have heard this phrase. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Have you heard that phrase? What an image that is. It's a poignant image of carelessness in the face of crisis, isn't it? Nero fiddled while Rome burned. There's a few modern day politicians. I don't particularly want to be political. You've had the Nero treatment. This is like the ultimate insult. Here's a picture of Rome burning. Can you see George W. Bush in the bottom right hand corner? And the, the implication being there's a crisis and this guy's playing his guitar. He's not the only one. Gordon Brown's had the same treatment, playing his violin, allegedly, while things go wrong. What about Barack Obama playing his heart there, dressed like a Roman? While the situation is kind of desperate, they're really uh, cutting these satirists, aren't they, in the newspapers. We're not here to be political at all, but I want you to get a sense of this idea insofar as it's relevant to the passage that we've read in 1 Peter. In AD 64, this great fire broke out in, in the city of Rome. Many buildings were destroyed. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were forced out of their homes. And this is the interesting thing. The consensus historically has been that far from being careless in a crisis, that actually the Emperor Nero had planned this devastation himself. That's far worse than any satire on a politician. He had actually planned for these fires to be started so that some of the back street ramshackle properties would be burnt away so that better, more glorious buildings in keeping with the image of Rome could be built. With no regard for his citizens, he started it. He's a pyromaniac. What an awful thing. And you can imagine in the city of Rome, there was understandable and widespread anger against this man Nero. So like a politician, I suppose, he looks around for a scapegoat. Who can I blame to show that this is not my fault? And he found a group of people who were perfect for this job. They were called Christians. They followed a man called Christ. Who had been killed 30 odd years before, but who these people claimed had risen from the dead. Some people claimed that they were cannibals because they talked about getting together in their houses and drinking Christ's blood and eating his flesh. And there were all sorts of other rumours and half-truths that circulated. So when Nero needed a scapegoat, Christians got it right in the neck. Nero had parties in his garden and he dipped Christians in tar and then set them alight to light the garden. He tied Christians to the chariot wheels and then drove through the city until they were dead. Some Christians were fed to lions. It was a cruel and a barbaric time. And this is the backdrop to the letter that we're about to embark on studying. I want to um, 
just deal with some very quick practicalities first. Very obviously, uh, it's Peter who wrote this letter. That's, letters were different. When, when we write a letter, you know this, don't you? We say, dear so-and-so, and then we write all the contents, and at the end we put, with lots of love from whoever you are. Greek letters were very different. At the top of the page, the person who was writing the letter would state their name, and then they would state a greeting to the people that they were writing to, and then they would give the content. So it's a little bit of a different structure, and all the Bible letters are like that, because they're all written in Greek. So right at the beginning there, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a few things you know about Peter. You'll know uh, that he was a disciple of Jesus, and an eyewitness of all the things that Jesus did and said when he was here on earth. That's why he calls himself an apostle. An apostle is a very special individual who saw Jesus and who witnessed Jesus being raised from the dead. These men were important men and Jesus personally commissioned them to go and preach the gospel in Jerusalem and all over the world. So Peter was an eyewitness. We also know he was a pretty down-to-earth type of guy. Uh, we can see through the Gospels that he was a fisherman. He was a working-class individual. He was from the north of the country. He wasn't part of the elite in the capital. And all through the Gospels as well, you'll know, uh, I think, that his impetuous nature often got the better of him. Peter was the kind of guy that would open his mouth and say something and then think, Oops, I need to really grab that and put it back, and you can't, can you? He, he, he was the kind of guy who would think before he spoke. He was a very impetuous, dynamic, energetic individual. We also know, don't we, that this man who's writing this letter knew what it was to make mistakes. It was Peter, wasn't it, who cried bitter tears, a failure, as he denied to a servant girl and others that he even knew the Lord that he loved. And his fear got the better of him. And with swearing and cursing, he said, I never knew him. And we're told in the Bible that he went outside and he wept bitterly. He knew what it was to make mistakes. And it's amazing how Jesus, after the resurrection, was so gentle with him and restored him and gave this man the primary responsibility of leading the fledgling church of Jesus. Amazing. We also know that Peter was a Jewish man, and most of his work in his early years after Jesus was, was done amongst Jews. And it took some time for Peter to come to terms with the fact that the message of Jesus is not just for Jewish people or for one kind of people, but it's for everyone all over the world. And God had to work in his heart to help him to understand that. And it's interesting that towards the end of his life, Peter is here writing to people who are not Jews. 30 years later, he's seeing that the gospel of Jesus is a global message and not just for Jews. Many commentators believe that Peter wrote this letter from Rome. And um, this is 30 odd years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the, the fire in Rome in AD 64 
uh, started by Nero, probably not personally, but by his henchmen. Uh, Peter is, is referring to the persecution that's broken out after that. So this is 30 odd years after the time of Jesus. And we, we don't know a great deal about Peter's life over all that time. But we do know that he's here in Rome towards the end of his life. Legend has it, it's not in the Bible, that Peter was martyred for his faith in Rome under the leadership of Nero. So the very letter that he's writing here to encourage other Christians in the face of persecution and he was, he was martyred himself. So it's a very interesting and poignant letter this. The reason that we can be fairly sure that this is written from Rome is if you go right to the end of the letter, uh, Peter uses a very odd phrase in the last, ver- last two verses there when he, he just gives his final greetings at the end. And he says in verse 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Babylon was an ancient city that was renowned for its immorality and idolatry. It was kind of, but if you wanted to describe a wicked city, you would say Babylon. And Rome was the modern day Babylon. You got that idea? So Peter's using this language, it's kind of a nickname, and he's saying, really, the Christians who are in Babylon, that is in Rome, who were chosen together with all of you who I'm writing to, send their greetings. So we kind of know from what he says at the end of the letter there, even though it's in cold language a bit, that he's in Rome. He's writing from Rome. And let's see who he's writing to. It says here, look at the greeting he gives, to God's elect, that is to God's chosen people. And look how he describes them in the face of these difficulties. They are strangers in the world. This world is not really their home. This world is broken. It's oppressive. It's a, it's a mess. These people are strangers in this world and scattered, maybe by some of the persecutions, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, most of those places in what we would call modern-day Turkey. So he's writing here a letter that's going to be circulated to all kinds of different Christians over quite a wide area who are in great difficulty under a very evil and wicked emperor. So you've got that picture in mind. Paul, uh, Peter is right in the thick of it in Rome and he's writing to encourage these believers who are scattered strangers in the world, suffering and struggling. So he's writing to encourage them. And I want to say, this is a letter that will be especially helpful to any Christian believer who is going through some kind of difficulty it's true that we're not being tied to chariot wheels and driven through Rotherham until we're dead but we do go through difficulties in our lives don't we and sometimes those difficulties are a direct result of our Christian faith this letter will be really helpful if you're facing a problem of suffering of any kind let me encourage you to get to grips with this letter as we go through it If you're wondering what God is doing in a complex world and what's going to happen in the future, if you wonder at the threat of competing ideologies and all the tension and stress that seems to exist in different places around the world, then this letter, of all letters, will do you good because it was written to Christian people in exactly that boat. So it would be good for us to suck all the juice 
out of what Peter says here and encourage our hearts as we remember the sovereign, gracious control of our God in his world. There's a lot in this letter that's practical and helpful. There's stuff here about families and marriage and work. There's even stuff in here about politics and how to relate to government of the day. There's stuff here about church and elders and leaders. And all the while, the backdrop to this is difficulties. How can we live for Jesus in a scary world that is often hostile to Christianity? Well, there's five chapters in this letter, so it'll take us a little while to get through it all. But just to give you an idea where we're going over this next three or four weeks, we're just going to be in chapter one to begin with. That's a good place to start. And uh, this is uh, just to give you some words. I want to just think about these four things. Hope, love, evidence and action. I want you to, over the next two weeks, today and next week, I want you to think about the fact that there are things that mark out Christian people as being different. There are distinctive things that make a Christian. And we're going to think about two of them today and next week. In Inside this is, Christian people have a living hope and a joyful love. That is a good distinctive of a Christian person. A living hope and a joyful love. But I want you to understand as well as Peter does that Christianity is not just about what goes on inside. It is grounded in things that have happened outside of us. Christianity isn't wishful thinking, but it's grounded in history. And there is evidence. It isn't something that just arises in people's hearts because they think it's a good idea. But God has done things in history, real things, in time, in space, in our world. So even though Christianity has got distinctive inner features, it also is based on solid outward evidence. And Peter talks about that, and we're going to come on to that maybe in week three. But the the final thing that I want to note from chapter one is that Peter isn't just saying this because it sounds nice. He wants his readers to do something and be so... He wants them to be who they are in Christ. Even in the face of their difficulty. Peter doesn't write something, oh, it's really hard at the moment. I think what you should do is all just batten down the hatches and just kind of, when this is all blown over, then you could live for Jesus. He doesn't lower his expectations. He challenges them to live for Jesus in spite of the difficulties that are there. That's powerful, isn't it? And a real challenge to us. So we're going to think about hope and love and evidence and then we're going to move on to think about what that means for us in our lives, action. Is that clear? Well, hopefully it will become clear it's not now over the next month. We're going to think about hope today. And uh, I want to focus your minds today on verse 6. And um, let's uh, see on the screen, we can read it again together. This is what Peter says in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I want to just introduce this by saying two things about this verse. Uh, One is, I I think you can see that this is an incredible contradiction in this verse, isn't it? Can you think of many sentences that would have the word great rejoicing and the word suffering in them? You see that paradox? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now you are suffering 
difficulties of all kinds. What's that all about? You're either happy or you're not. <laughs> you're either rejoicing or you're suffering, aren't you? How can Peter say that both those things are true at the same time? Does that, does that feel like a paradox? In this, you greatly rejoice. There are things that make you very happy indeed, and yet you're suffering and you have to face reality and pain and difficulty. How can these things be both true at the same time? This verse is a very unusual combination of joy and pain. I think this is really important for us to realise that it is possible to live in this broken, confusing, painful world and know something of joy. It is possible to confront the reality that is really there and no joy. And maybe I should say this strongly. True Christian joy does not come from hiding from reality. It doesn't come by taking drugs and trying to escape from reality. It doesn't come by pretending that life isn't what it really is. True Christian joy can cope with the reality of a broken, confusing world. This verse says it, doesn't it? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, you have to suffer. We're not hiding from this, and we do know this. That's a great encouragement. You can see the relevance of this letter in such a dark time that Peter's uh, writing in. But I want you to notice as well, kind of grammatically, that, that this verse is a kind of link verse. It's like a hinge that this little passage turns on. Because when Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, he's looking back to what he's just been saying in the verses before, isn't he? And when you look at the end of the verse, and say, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Then in verse 7, he goes, these have come, so that, and he goes on to talk about the trials. So this verse is like a little hinge that the passage turns on. Can you see that? He's really talking about the joy, and then he's going on to talk about the sufferings. And this verse is like the middle of that, and he's referring back to it, and then looking forward from it. So this is a kind of link verse here. And what I want to do with these two ideas of joy and suffering is talk about this hope. And uh, I've just got two statements for you. And we're going to do exactly what Peter says. We're going to look back at the verses 7, uh, 3 to, to 5, and then look forward to think about these difficulties. So I've got two statements. Here's the first one. Christian believers have a present hope that is now, today, this morning, of a great and a glorious future. Hope is really important, isn't it? I think this is something that our politicians are having to grapple with, isn't it? Young people particularly, you have nothing to look forward to. That's hard, isn't it? No hope. 
so they're just listless directionless nothing to live for but it's true in life isn't it you need to have something to live for and Christians have a present hope of a glorious and a great future so what's Peter referring to when he says in verse 6 in this you greatly rejoice he's pointing us back isn't he and just look with me just for a few moments at verses 3 and 4 and 5 it's huge encouragement for us here he begins here by with a note of praise praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ first of all Peter introduces us to the idea of the Trinity here he's not mentioned it explicitly but what an amazing thing for him to say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and it's this idea isn't it of God the nature of God there's one God but in an amazing way he exists in three distinct personalities and some people think you know that God is kind of like a lonely old man in the sky who's got no friends and he had to make the world so he'd have some friends do you know God doesn't need anything God I suppose one of the good ways to picture this is like God is like the perfect family in a way Father, Son and Spirit head over heels in love with one another perfectly in harmony enjoying one another's company and actually this universe is the overflow of that it isn't because God is deficient God is so happy and glorious and in perfect harmony that that love and joy and happiness and creativity overflows into creation and God makes a a world, a universe and people and isn't it incredible that God said let us, not let me, let us create man in our image what is the crowning glory of creation that people have been made to be like God in the sense that they can enjoy relationship isn't that where our greatest happiness comes from and our greatest heartaches come from the fact that we're made for relationship when they go wrong it devastates us and we all crave healthy relationships don't we it's because that's what God's like Father, Son and Spirit and what an amazing thing that into this broken world this perfect family Jesus the Son of God has been delegated to be the one who would come into this human race take human flesh and come the children were singing about it for God so loved the world he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life Jesus has come God in a human body so the idea of Trinity is here that's the thing to pray praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ but the second idea that's here is the idea of generosity look at what Peter goes on to say God the Father in his great mercy has given us something so there's the idea of generosity and this is a big thing for many people isn't it many people think that Christianity is about earning brownie points and doing things to impress God and it's religion 
And here, Peter, right at the beginning, says, do you know what? Everything that we have comes from God. And it's his mercy. We don't deserve anything really from him. But he is overflowingly generous. He is merciful. He's kind. He's a forgiving God. And he sent Jesus to be our saviour. The idea of Christianity being a gift. And this also, thirdly, there's the idea here of Christianity being uh, a new birth. In his great mercy, God the Father has given us new birth into a living hope. And here's the other idea, isn't there, that some people think, don't they, well, I was born in England, I must be a Christian. It's the Church of England and all that kind of stuff. And, well, if you live in England, you're a Christian, aren't you? You go to hospital, what religion are you? Well, I'm a Christian, I live in England. But here, Peter kind of deals with that, doesn't he? This God has come to you, and because of what Jesus has done, he has given you new birth. Christianity isn't something you're born into, it is something you are born again into. And so many people don't realise this, that you, you need to begin the Christian life. And it's a gift from God. Born into a new status. Sometimes you go on Facebook and people have profiles, don't they, on Facebook and it says, you know, what they like. And... and um, for a Christian, when you're born into this living hope, your status has changed. Do you know, I became a Christian when I was a young boy. I was only seven when I became a Christian. I don't remember a great deal about it. And I suppose back then, I didn't really think it was the most important thing to happen to me. Since then, I've made a lot of important decisions. Who to marry, where to live, what job to do. All of those things seem really serious, big decisions. But do you know, at the age of seven, when I trusted Jesus as my saviour, actually, even though that felt like a, a small decision for a boy of seven, it is the most important decision because that is when I was born again into a living hope. My status changed, became a new person going to a new destination this is a new status entirely and it's actually the decision that has shaped all of the other ones even though they feel more important sometimes the most important thing that's where Peter starts the most important thing is not what you're going through it is who you are in Jesus that is the most crucial thing and the basis for it all is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us new birth into a living hope because Jesus died and rose again. Here's the thing. We've, I've talked to you before about this. Death is not a cul-de-sac anymore because Jesus has smashed through it. How good is that? I've told you the story before. Colin Smith had a little hamster. Well, it wasn't his. It was the classes. 
the class that he in the school he was in had a hamster and the weekend came when he could take it home and he was only young and he put and he had a little red London bus and he thought I bet my hamster would love to play in that so the little hamster got into the bus it was quite a big little thing hamster got into the bus went upstairs along the top deck and then realised couldn't turn around and as much as the hamster tried couldn't reverse his bum was too big couldn't turn around and the hamster's stuck and he's what am I going to do I can't take the hamster back in the London bus and he went to tell his dad what did his dad have to do much to his sadness his favourite London bus he had to slice the roof off the bus so that the hamster could go out do you know that's what Jesus has done for us death is not a cul-de-sac anymore you don't go into it and just sit there Jesus has blown a hole through death that is the basis of the living hope that we have it's not a cul-de-sac anymore and so because of Jesus if you're a Christian this morning you've been given the title deeds to a glorious future because of what Jesus has done isn't that great? It is a living hope too because Jesus will never die again. Have you thought about this? This is the deal. As long as Jesus Christ is alive, your hope is secure. Unless someone made us and does away with him, your hope is alive. And you know what? He never will die again. Son of God. Creator. And your hope is safe in his hands. When you're connected to Jesus, your future is glorious. Is it any wonder that Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice? What makes you happy? In that, there's many things in life that can make you happy. But Peter starts with the most crucial thing, doesn't it? In this, you greatly rejoice. You have a living hope. Believers have a hope today of a glorious future. Let's just think about this uh, living hope then because Peter says some amazing things here in verse 4 and 5. And he talks about it as an inheritance. You know, an inheritance. uh, Something that you receive in the future. One of the things about buying stuff in this world is the frustration that it always loses its shine you have that experience in life I think it was Lisa who was saying about adverts as well it's not really on this theme but when the boys buy toys and they come home they say it's not as good as it was when it was sort of telly so even the adverts don't kind of agree with the reality but when you, you, know, you buy a new car eventually it'll go rusty you put new curtains up in your house you ladies eventually they go faded and you have to have new ones you have a new carpet eventually you need a new one nothing keeps its freshness does it Everything loses its shine and luster. It's just the grinding years of time, isn't it? But look at what Peter says about this inheritance. You have been given, you've been brought into, you've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, that can never spoil, and that can never fade. Get that? God has created a future, an inheritance for you. That will never lose its freshness. It will never lose its glorious sheen. 
This is a theme of incorruptibility is the word, isn't it? Christians have been given a future that will never lose its shine. God keeps it shining. But the amazing uh, truth here as well, as we kind of go through the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, is that God doesn't just keep that future shining, but he keeps the individual believer whose future that is strong. Do you get that? This is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade because God keeps it. It's kept in heaven for you. But then he says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. So here's, here's the deal. Believers have a present hope of a glorious future because God keeps the inheritance and he keeps you. That's a double keeping, isn't it? The inheritance is safe in his hands and you are safe in his hands. Isn't that an encouragement? We can rejoice in the fact that God has not only given us a great and living hope, but that he's actually preserving and protecting and keeping us safe until we receive it one day. This is an unbreakable covenant, isn't it? Sometimes it can fail, I think. Maybe you don't think, but maybe you do. I think I know you do. Sometimes it can fail like we're hanging on with all the strength left in our fingertips. How can I hold on to God? How can I keep going? I feel like I'm losing my grip. But that isn't what the Bible teaches here. That isn't Peter's understanding of the Christian life. Here Peter is encouraging them not to trust in their own efforts to hold on, but to put their faith in a God who can hold on to them. Isn't that a different way of looking at life? This is not a competition to see who can hold on the longest. Sometimes we have those strongman competitions. One of the hardest things, I think, is when they give them like a really heavy battery to hold and they have to hold it at arm's length like that without that arm going down. Honestly, you could do it for three seconds and my arm would be going down. And they stand there and you can see their cheeks going red and their arm shaking and then eventually they just have to drop it. Is that your image of Christianity? Who can hold on the longest? We're all trying so hard to keep going. That isn't the picture at all that Peter uses here. This is a demonstration of God's power in keeping and shielding and protecting his children to bring them home. He keeps the inheritance and he keeps the inheritor. A double keeping. These people are living in difficult days. They need to be encouraged. And so Peter says to them, in this you greatly rejoice. You have a glorious future and God is keeping you. We said this face was a little hinge though. That's the kind of looking back and the joy. What does Peter go on to say about our struggles? Here's my second statement. Not only to believe us have a present hope of a glorious future but God has a great design in our present pain this is also a great hope 
I want you to see that God is always doing something very special in all the circumstances of our lives. These are difficult times for these Christian believers. We could say far worse than the difficulties we experience, even though they can be hard. But this is what Peter says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that... Can you see the connection there? These trials have come so that your faith may be proved genuine. There is a point, in other words, to pain. It isn't random. It isn't just a kind of mysterious randomness that's going on. When struggles come, Christian believers can have the hope that God has a great design in our pain. That is hard for us sometimes to come to terms with. But that's what Peter says here. You've suffered trials. These have come for a reason. Sometimes people in the world say everything happens for a reason, don't they? Here's the evidence for that. We say that to encourage ourselves. Maybe there's no other wishful thinking. But it's true for a Christian believer. These things have come for a reason. They've happened so that something else can be the case. So not only do we have a great hope, of, a present hope of a great future, but we also have the hope that God is using our life experiences to refine us and to develop our character and to prepare us to enjoy that future. And pain has a genuine part to play in that. Our pain is working for our ultimate good. So we have to say then, don't we, that in the end, the ultimate design is God's. We're not at the mercy of events. God hasn't lost the plot. He hasn't gone on holiday somewhere and left us to kind of work out things on our own. It is God who is the sovereign Lord. And he isn't absent or out of touch. He hasn't forgotten you. He isn't impotent. These things have happened so that God has a design in your trials. It is in a real sense down to his sovereign will whether Christian people will suffer or not. Peter says here, you may have had to suffer. It may have been necessary. He's talking about the fact that God may have deemed it necessary and that if we have to suffer trials, Peter goes on to say that these have come for specific reasons. The will of God is involved. And pain is not a chance, random thing. There's an important question here. And um, I don't want to gloss over this. And, and maybe this is question is on you, your mind right now. Does this mean that God sends pain then? Does God in fact ordain these things? And these are important real questions, aren't they? Marriage breakups, business failures, persecutions, ill health, sinful habits, wars, famines. Are we saying that God sends these things? Well, let me read a quote to you here 
from one Christian writer, he says this, God does not delight in pain for its own sake. And he does not command sin or approve of sinning. But he does will that these things be in the sense that he could prevent any of those things but sometimes doesn't, but rather guides them because of higher designs than the destructiveness of sin or the deceitfulness of Satan or the painfulness even of suffering. He does not endorse or approve sinning but he can and does will that sinful acts come about for his own holy designs. What the writer is saying there is that God doesn't send pain but he is able to overrule it and use it for his own ends in ways that transcend the pain sin cannot overcome God but God can and does use painful realities to achieve his purposes in this world let me uh, that's hard isn't it let's uh, think that through with the help of a real life example do you remember in the Old Testament the story of a man called Joseph I'm sure you've heard of Joseph because he's been made a bit popular with musicals about him and his technical dream coat and different people singing, playing the part of Joseph do you know in Joseph's life his brothers treated him abominably the brothers sinned they hated him They thought he was an arrogant young upstart and they threw him into a pit and then they felt guilty so they brought him out of the pit and sold him as a slave to some merchants that were passing by on the way to Egypt. They then killed a goat, dipped Joseph's multicoloured coat in the blood, went home and told their dad that they'd found him and he'd been killed by a wild beast. Imagine that. When Joseph gets to Egypt as a young man really he decides to put God first and even though this catastrophe has happened not his fault he works hard for his master Potiphar and what happens Potiphar's wife takes a shine to him and being the noble righteous young man that he is he refuses her advances until she gets him in an embrace he runs away she pulls his coat And then, because of her frustrated desires. Hello, Sarah. Hello. How nice to see you. There's nobody looking after the kids out there. You don't have to worry about them at all. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph, lies about him. And who's Potiphar going to believe? He believes his wife. Joseph's thrown into prison. Even in prison, it becomes clear that Joseph has an amazing relationship with God and he interprets the cupbearer and the baker's dreams. And was it the cupbearer who went back and he says, don't don't forget me, will you? And the cupbearer goes back, gets his job back. The other guy's executed and as soon as he's got his job back he forgets all about Joseph and Joseph remains in prison unjustly what what on earth is God doing in his life none of it is really his fault other people's sin and wickedness 
great difficulty. It's amazing that he didn't become bitter and angry. But I just want to turn you uh, to the first book in the Bible to hear the amazing words of Joseph. Uh, The book of Genesis. We'll just go first to Genesis chapter 45. It's on page 51. And just listen to what Joseph says. You think about all the experiences he's had. And eventually it comes to time when he makes himself known to his brothers. They're pretty terrified. What's he going to do to us? They didn't recognise him at first. It's very poignant as well. It says in verse 1 there, he couldn't control himself any longer. And he, and he, he said to his attendants, get up, tell everyone to get out. And there was no one except Joseph and his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And look at what he says in verse 7. This is what he says to his brothers who've wronged him. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Hang on a minute. Who was it who sent Joseph to Egypt? Was it not his brothers selling him as a slave? And yet Joseph's perspective is, God sent me to Egypt. And then he says, even more amazingly, so then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father, who thought I was dead, and tell him. We just go over the page uh, to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Eventually the father dies and then the brothers think he's only really kept us safe while Jacob's been alive. Now that our dad's gone, we're going to get it and the true colours of Joseph are going to come out. So they go to Joseph to plead really and ask for forgiveness. They're frightened. And at the end of verse 17, just on the last page of Genesis there, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And listen to this verse. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Can you write that verse out on a card when you get home and put it on your mirror, your mantelpiece? And when someone hates you and you think, where is God in all this? You'd be able to say like Joseph, you intended to hate me, but God intended it for good. What a, what a perspective Joseph had. How many times his life had been wronged? People hating him, rejecting him, selling him, lying about him. And all the while through, his perspective is, not to condone that, you intended to hate me, but God intended it for good. God doesn't cause people to sin. He doesn't send pain. 
but it can never overcome him and defeat him. God can work through pain and bring good about in our lives because he's sovereign and king and glorious. He isn't some weak, impotent, backed into a corner, kind of cheapo line manager who can't do anything because someone's kind of... This is God we're speaking about. You intended to hurt me. God intended it for good. Peter's writing this letter. And this is a great verse that highlights how believing people should read their circumstances. These trials have come from all sorts of unexpected sources, but the one great truth is that God is in control. And these have come so that. Joseph's life's one example. Do you know the cross where Jesus died is another? 30 years before this letter is written, Peter was preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And he talked about the fact that wicked men had put Jesus to death. And then he says, this all happened because of God's set purpose. What a mystery that is. That wicked men wanted to do harm. to They intended it for harm. And God overruled it and intended it for good. For the salvation of millions of sinners in his world. It was a horrific act of sinful murder. And yet God planned it and used it to be the means of salvation. Is that not a mystery? Sin can never overcome God. God will always overcome evil and bring good from it as we trust in him. So the great hope is fixed here for you as a a Christian believer that when awful trials come we can say these have come so that ABC God is not far away he isn't at the mercy of events he is in control even when it seems like everything is spiralling out of control so are you still with me? Christian believers, first of all, have a great hope today of a glorious future. But we also can know that God has a great design in our present pain. What a living hope that is. In Romans chapter 12, Paul there talks about being patient in affliction. We were thinking about it in January. And what he's really saying is, I don't want you to be bitter when trouble comes. I don't want you to try and throw it all off. I want you to be determined to submit to my gracious dealings with you and yet still shine for Jesus in this world. Be patient in affliction. Don't become embittered, but have the confidence that God is working out his purposes. And we could go to Romans 8 as well, couldn't we? where Paul talks about all things uh, working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, not just some things, not just good things, but all things working together by God's design. Let me just close with some very rapid fire comments here. Because I know that there are some of you here You know what it is to go through difficulties. Let me give you some things to take away. 
I, th- I don't think the Bible, like maybe some people might think, and maybe other religions teach, that uh, pain is some sort of unreality. The pain, in God's dealing with this, let, let's just be real. The pain is real. Peter says here, you may have suffered grief. There is a place for real tears, real sadness and real heartache. That is not letting God down. We're very British, aren't we? And we like to keep a stiff upper lip and not show our weakness, vulnerability. Peter says, you may have had to suffer grief. You may, you may have to suffer grief. So learn that pain is real. God sometimes exposes us to the kind of things we fear. And our response to that isn't to deny that we feel pain, but to accept the reality that pain is real and yet to be able to say, I trust in him. The pain is real, but he knows what he's doing and I'm going to hold his hand and walk with him. There's a point to it and it's achieving something, it must be, that couldn't be achieved in any other way. Secondly, I want you to notice that the the difficulties that we experience can be varied. If only we could say that there's just one thing on my plate. (laughs) That would be great, wouldn't it? This is the lesson that God has got for me at the moment and this is the only thing I have to endure. But it's not like that in life, isn't it? Life's complicated. And there's this thing and there's this thing and then when this thing finishes there's another thing. And isn't it a great encouragement that Peter says, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It's not just one thing. If it's not one thing, it'll be something else. The difficulties are varied. Our trials can be physical, emotional, spiritual. They can relate to our finances, our relationships, our work. God, in his wisdom, weaves through our lives and the lives of others Wisdom that we only see a part of. And our difficulties can be varied. I want you to see that Peter also says that the trials that we go through, comparatively, are very brief. Compared to what? Compared to someone else's struggles? No. Compared to a lifetime? No. But compared to what God has in store in the future for those who love him. So Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. It won't last forever. And comparatively, the time is very short. It isn't endless. will come to an end. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that he couldn't even find the words to compare his present sufferings with the weight of glory that was yet to come. It was like, if I put them on a scale, it would go. (coughs) This is hard, but comparatively short. This is safe and secure and eternal. Was it not uh, the writer to Hebrews who said, even if Jesus, that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Exactly the same. It's hard and it's real, but comparatively short. 
compared to the glory to be revealed. And the, the fourth thing, very quickly, is that this pain refines our faith. Here's the nub of the issue. Your faith, you, you have faith if you're a Christian believer, but it's not yet perfect faith. It's precious faith. It's real faith. Jesus talked about having faith the size of a mustard seed. But it's not yet perfect faith, is it? Oh, we struggle, don't we? Doubts and fears. and We have faith, but it's not yet perfect perfected faith you do rely on God but it's mixed up with all sorts of other things as well it's real faith and precious faith but not yet pure faith Peter compares it to God this is why I've left fire on the screen here we've talked about this before this crucible idea when gold is being purified it goes in the crucible the fire comes it melts and all the rubbish rises to the top and the goldsmith can scrape it all off so that what's left behind is more pure than it was before. Trials are not sent to destroy our faith and make us cower, but to purify and beautify and enhance our faith and cause it to shine like purified gold. God doesn't send trials because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he has a design to make your faith shine and the last thing I wanted to say was this that in God's dealing with the pain will result in great honour in the future what does Peter say from his rich experience he says so that these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed do you know the reason faith is precious is not because of whose it is but because of who it is in your faith is in Christ that's what makes it precious and even despite difficulties now when Jesus is revealed and we come into that inheritance that he's prepared for us what honour and glory and joy there will be and that faith that we've had, even in the midst of difficulties now, is proven. What a joy that will be. Great honour in the future. I wonder whether pure faith, you know, is like a mirror that kind of reflects the glory and beauty of Jesus and the difficulties that come into our life. It's like the mirror being polished so that it reflects that glory more accurately. Well, I hope that we can derive great encouragement from this great letter what a terrible time these people lived in a world in upheaval wicked rulers oppression and injustice Christians living like strangers in the world scattered and Peter writes them and says in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while you may suffer in all kinds of trials I want to ask you this morning, are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Saviour, Lord, King? If you are, even if you have no gold, thank God that you have faith. And if you're suffering trials, rejoice that he is refining and purifying your faith to make it shine all the more so that you'll know great joy when you come into the inheritance that he's keeping safe for you and keeping you safe for 
Amen.